The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to The Journey, stories of crisis and hope. Your host is Jessica Pirro. In today's program, we will provide awareness and education on various types of crises, the impact they have on one's well-being, and provide help to empower hope for you or someone you love. This program will help you understand various types of crisis situations by hearing from experts in the crisis response field, as well as those with lived experience through a difficult time. Now, here's Jessica Pirro. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to The Journey, Stories of Crisis and Hope. I am your host, Jessica Pirro, and I want to thank you so much for tuning into our show today. As we begin our discussion, and if you have any questions during the show for our guests, you can email me at jpirrovoiceamerica at gmail.com. That is J-P-I-R-R-O, voiceamerica at gmail.com. We would love to hear any questions that you have, so please consider sending us an email during the show. We come to you live every week from Crisis Services in Buffalo, New York, where I proudly serve as the CEO of the of Crisis Services, which is the 24-hour crisis center for Buffalo and Erie County. The topics this show covers gives you a look in the day in the life of crisis centers across the country, where our crisis first responders are always ready to provide support, intervention and hope during a difficult time. If you're interested in learning more about our organization, our mission, and how you can donate to us, please visit our website at www.crisisservices.org. The focus of today's discussion is From Victim to Survivor, Responding to Rape and Sexual Assault. April is Sexual Assault Awareness Month, so today is one of three shows that I'll be doing this month focusing on responding to sexual violence in our community. Rape and sexual assault is pervasive in our society. Victimization occurs across the lifespan and impacts all segments of our community. Sexual assault can take many different forms, but one thing remains the same. It's never the victim's fault. Today we will discuss the traumatic effects sexual assault has on the victim in the immediate aftermath and throughout the person's life. We will discuss the community's response to sexual assault, including the role of rape crisis centers, victim advocacy, the forensic evidence collection process, law enforcement investigation, and the path through the criminal justice system. I am very fortunate to have three amazing guests joining me today throughout the show to give you a multidisciplinary perspective on how we will respond to those impacted by the trauma of rape. My guests today include Robin Wiktorski-Reynolds, who's the director of our advocate program here at Crisis Services, Holly Franz, who's the sexual assault forensic examiner coordinator at Crisis Services, and Lieutenant David Mann, who's the lieutenant in charge of the sex offense section at the City of Buffalo Police Department. This combination of expertise will provide you with a real rich discussion on this issue and help uh, the direction for our listeners who might be impacted 
impacted on sexual by sexual violence. But before we start, and as I've done on every show, I want to make sure that we're sharing a resource for you to, to reach out to if that during the show you hear about this this topic and these these conversations and you think this is something that you need assistance with or maybe someone that you love, we would ask you to reach out to the National Sexual Assault Hotline. And that number is 1-800-656-HOPE. That's 1-800-656-4673. And that hotline, when you call in, actually will connect you directly to your local rape crisis center in your own community. So it's a national hotline, but will route you right to your local resources. And you can also go online to RAIN.org. That's R-A-I-N-N.org for a lot of information, resources, to also find your local rape crisis center. But also they have the ability for you to chat online with a counselor, which is a great resource for somebody that maybe isn't ready to talk with somebody um, over the phone. So to start the show today, I want to welcome back my first guest, Robin Wiktorski-Reynolds. She joined me a few weeks back um, when we did our show on domestic violence. Robin is the director of the Advocate Program here at Crisis Services, which runs the Department of Health-designated Rape Crisis Center, a New York State-approved non-residential domestic violence provider, and oversees the Sexual Assault Forensic Examiner Program um, here at Crisis Services. So to get our conversation started, Robin, can you just help us understand uh, the, the definition of rape? Thank you so much, Jessica, for having me back. And I really want to thank you for taking some time out of your uh, for your shows to focus on this issue. As you had mentioned, April is Sexual Assault Awareness Month. And I'm so pleased that we're able to have this discussion um, here with all of your listeners. When we think about rape and sexual assault, there's there's different ways you can look at the definition. There is the legal definition in the, the penal code, uh, but then there's sort of the, the social definition, the way that everyday folks um, use the term rape and sexual assault to describe their experiences. And I know later you're having a guest, um, our local um, lieutenant of the Buffalo Police Sex Offense Section, and he'll dig into this a little bit deeper. However, the legal definition really has to do with the um, penetration, however slight, of the vagina or anus uh, with any part or object. Um, and that's a very specific um, piece of uh, the larger definition. But when you speak to uh, survivors of this crime, they may not necessarily be able to recite the penal code. Um, and they may uh, experience um, their victimization as uh, what we what they might call rape that might not meet or qualify that definition. So we have a lot of conversations with victims uh, when we see them at the hospital as part of our 24-hour response, when maybe we're meeting with them and law enforcement for the first time to help understand what they experienced uh, and really what that means in the sense of um, the criminal justice world. At all costs, we want to validate people's experiences, but we also want to make sure that they understand um, what this might mean in terms of moving forward on a criminal case. But when we think about maybe more of the social definition, um, we look at this as more of a spectrum, so a spectrum of sexual violence, and that includes any unwanted um, contact um, of a sexual nature, um, 
And, and that can include um, being forced into sexual activity with an individual or individuals. It could be um, sexual harassment in terms of someone's in, um, environment or um, comments or text messages or things they may be receiving. It could also be, um, you know, being forced to, you know, view pornography or participate in um, 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 pornographic um, situations with people. Um, all, all of these things, though, encompass one thing, and that is that you don't have the consent of that person. Um, so again, I think it's important to understand that this is a, a spectrum. It starts um, in some of our every, everyday lives with regards to um, our how we might be tolerating uh, you know rape jokes uh, at our workplaces um, all the way to um, uh, sexual violence how I think many of us um, think about it which is a, a person uh, raping another person um, ultimately you know the end could be um, could be death but uh, it's it's important to understand that it looks different for every person right right and I think that's really I think there's there's when you look at the charges of these types of crimes, there's definitely definitions that the law enforcement uses to fit the different penal codes of the state and how that looks. Um, But for how that person feels, um, it's not to correct their language, but to help them understand based on if they are going to press charges, how that definition may be different than how they're describing it, um, just based on our understanding of what we understand rape to be. Absolutely. And I think that's really important in local communities for anyone who might be listening. Here in Buffalo and Erie County, we work really closely with our law enforcement um, officials to have that understanding between, you know, advocates, which are the folks that are going to be walking alongside this person during the process, along with law enforcement to really understand each discipline's role, but to make sure that the the victim at all costs understands kind of where they are in this process and the language that we might be using. Right, right. You had mentioned earlier when you were making the, the going over the description that a big part of this all comes down to consent. And I think that's a really important discussion to get into because I think sometimes that piece of it gets lost when people um, are talking about rape and sexual assault. Could, so can we just talk clearly when you say the definition of sure. consent, what, what that looks like? Sure. Consent is an understanding, a, a clear understanding of um, participating in any activity. And for the purposes of this conversation, it's, it's um, sexual activity. One way we like to frame it is that consent is not the absence of a no. Um, And it's important to understand that, especially now, there's a lot of discussion about consent with college campuses and federal legislation, that consent is an active participatory um, agreement in any stage of the sexual activity, meaning two individuals may be starting to engage in sexual activity and at any point when one person does not want to continue and they express that their their consent is no longer given, then everything has to stop. Um, and I think that we're evolving as a community and as a nation as to what consent looks like um, in various um, scenarios. Uh, but really the big push now is, is, is yes means yes. There used to be a lot of conversation around no means no. But we have learned a lot from survivors over time that sometimes they couldn't say no. They were frozen. Um, depending on our, our response to the trauma, uh, some people feel completely incapacitated. And not being able to say anything um, 
doesn't imply that they're consenting to this activity. Mm-hmm. So um, this is a conversation that we are having not only in the victim advocacy and sexual assault um, area, but as we're working with not just ca- college campuses, but all also with K through 12 around how are we really talking about sexuality and normal, healthy sexual development, healthy relationships, what is consent? Because really what we're finding when we go out and do some of these educational presentations or prevention education, many young adults have no idea what consent is. Right, right. And what that healthy relationships looks like, which includes consent. So I think a couple just takeaway points. And when you're talking with consent is that consent is an ongoing process. And that past consent does not mean future consent. Right, right. right. So that that comes up a lot, right, with married couples. So um, we still hear, though there's laws on the books pretty much across this country, that marital rape doesn't exist because two people are married. Uh, But that idea that past consent does not mean future consent, it's the same whether you're married or you've been in a long-term relationship with someone, um, that each each time that you're engaging in sexual activity with somebody, both parties have to be fully on board. And I think one of the other pieces to take away is saying yes to sexual activity is not consent for all types of sexual activity. So it's really important that um, conversations are happening between partners about what their comfort level is and what their, you know, what sex- types of sexual activity they're engaging with. So that level of co- that line of consent doesn't get crossed. Right. And this is where those discussions around communication, about sexuality, a lot of these conversations need to be had much younger than we, we see now. We're seeing ripple effects of um, not being able to really communicate uh, well about these issues um, translate uh, potentially into crimes uh, where uh, individuals are not seeking consent, don't understand consent. And on the other side of the spectrum, we may have survivors who don't even realize they can say no. Just um, for our listeners today, you know, this is really an important discussion. So if you do have any questions, please do either email me at jpirovoiceamerica at gmail.com. But also we are able to take calls today from our listeners. So if you do want to call in and ask us a question, you can reach us at one 866 472 Again, one 866 472 so, Robin, what if somebody thinks that they've been sexually assaulted, what would they do? Well, the first thing is uh, get to a safe place, depending on where that person is. Um, and that safe place may mean um, going home. Um, it may be uh, going to a hospital. Um, in the end, we really encourage survivors to present to a hospital, especially if the assault occurred within the last several days at the hospital. Um, They will be provided with options to speak to a sexual assault nurse examiner, which we are so happy to have our local Holly Franz here to talk about in the next segment, um, who can really guide that person through their options, Uh, the forensic evidence collection kit, maybe a drug-facilitated sexual assault kit, but really to also make sure that they're medically okay. Um, They have uh, access to emergency contraception, um, you know, HIV post-exposure prophylaxis and, and um, sexually transmitted infections. And they also can be linked with an advocate. Um, m- most, if many, if not most uh, communities, definitely in New York State, but across the country where there are rape crisis centers, there is 
usually either a 24-hour hospital response or a 24-hour hotline where survivors can speak to um, a trained rape crisis counselor on what their options are. So even if they don't want to go to the hospital, they should most definitely reach out to their local resource to talk about what their options might be. What are some um, physical or emotional responses that somebody might have after an assault? Uh, This is really going to range depending on that person. Um, They may be in complete shock of what just occurred. Um, They may feel some shame around uh, or or their own self-blame about what what just happened. Um, They may be incredibly scared. They may be uh, so paralyzed in their response to the trauma that they can't make a decision about what to do. Um, They may also be feeling the pressures of their community um, about whether or not to come forward with this, depending on either who the perpetrator was um, or their past experience. Unfortunately, we know the rates of this crime are uh, really of an epidemic nature. And so they may have had uh, negative experiences in the past, which have prevented them from coming forward again. But we really want to encourage people to reach out for help through their local hotline. What could be just one um, point of advice that you can give to a friend or family member? If they, if somebody comes to you and says, you know, I was raped. What what would be just a couple words of, of support that they can provide? Great question. I would say the first thing you need to say to that person is, are you okay? I believe you. And let's figure out what we can do next together. Uh, those that, that support system is crucial in helping a person move to the next step, whatever that's going to be for them. Okay. So I think the judgment piece and not being judgmental about the what somebody is bringing to you is really an important piece for that path of recovery after a trauma like this. Absolutely. You don't want to say things like, what were you doing there? If there was alcohol involved, why were you drinking? I told you so. All of those things are off the table, are not going to help. And in fact, may push that person to um, uh, an even worse place, including lethal thoughts, potential suicide attempts, or other mental health decompensation. I think it's really important that, you know, uh, resources are out there. So for friends, for family, or for someone who themselves has been victimized, to please reach out to either your local rape crisis hotline. Again, the website that we gave earlier is RAIN, which is the Rape Abuse Incest National Network, and that's RAIN.org, R-A-I-N-N.org, is a great resource to be able to uh, reach out to to find out more information um, about your local rape crisis centers. Again, there's an uh, online uh, texting and chatting option with a counselor. So it's really a great resource for you to be able to connect um, you, someone that you love or someone yourself, if you yourself are thinking that you need to reach out for that support. Um, and there's also information on how to find you know, uh, local community uh, sources to become involved in being a part of ending uh, sexual violence in your community. So uh, we have a lot to discuss today. So please stay tuned. You're listening to The Journey, Stories of Crisis and Hope. life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Much of the time, the illnesses that people feel are simply symptoms, and they mask the root cause of what the real health problem is. You can take back control of your own health, starting with billionaire health care. 
This program is hosted by Ashley Black. Our program will introduce you to fascia, which is the knowledge of the living matrix. This bit of knowledge can bring you the health secrets that only the rich and famous have known until now. Listen Wednesdays at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Health & Wellness. The root causes of disease can be better prevented and cured using an integration of modern medicine and holistic healing techniques. Become educated by tuning in to Generation Regeneration with Sandra Guy Malhotra. Conventional medicine does have its place, but it should not be the only course of action. It's all about regenerating and healing our whole selves through better choices in lifestyle, foods, spiritual connection, and stress management. Tune in every Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Tune in every Tuesday for C. diff, spores, and more with hosts Nancy Kerala and Dr. Chandra Bali Ghosh. Our program is to provide information about C. diff, healthcare-associated infections, and more. Nancy is a C. diff survivor, healthcare professional, and the founder and executive director of the C. diff Foundation. And Dr. Ghosh is the chairperson of research and development for the C. diff Foundation. Together with their guests, we'll explore infection prevention, treatments, environmental safety, and more. Listen every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific, on Voice America Health & Wellness. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You are listening to The Journey, stories of crisis and hope. We'd love to hear from you with any questions or comments about the show. Please send an email to jpirrovoiceamerica at gmail.com. That's J-P-I-R-R-O, voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the journey. Here again is Jessica Pira. Welcome back, everyone, and thank you so much for joining us today. We are talking about rape and sexual assault. April is Sexual Assault Awareness Month, so we wanted to take some time um, over this show and over the next couple of shows to really give you some good background and information about this issue um, and the role that you can play um, in your community to help end sexual violence. So um, as we had mentioned, uh, if you have any questions uh, that you have for our guests, you can definitely give us a call. Um, The number to reach us is 1-866-472-5792. So please give us a call or send us an email if you have any questions during the show. So I want to welcome my next guest uh, to this discussion in responding to rape and sexual assault. Um, I want to introduce uh, Holly Franz um, and tell you a little bit about Holly. Holly is the coordinator of the Sexual Assault Forensic Examiner Program at Crisis Services here in Buffalo, New York. Uh, the Sexual Assault Forensic Examiner team provides on-site forensic services to rape victims who go to any of our Catholic Health Services hospitals as well as our adult Kaleida hospitals um, in our community. Um, as a member of the Erie County Rape Crisis Advisory Committee, Holly is a key resource for law enforcement authorities, the district attorney's office, uh, forensic and toxicology lab directors, crisis counselors, hospital staff, and um, other actual safe programs in our surrounding communities. So she's definitely a a key stakeholder in helping our community um, in responding to rape and sexual assault. Holly is is certified as a sexual assault nurse examiner in Massachusetts as well as in 
in New York um, and is also certified through the International Association of Forensic Nurses. So welcome to the show, Holly. We're so glad to have you. Thank you so much for inviting me. Absolutely. So I think the first thing I'd like to just start with is if we can share with our listeners, um, what is a safe nurse, a sexual assault forensic examiner nurse? Can you just Mm -hmm. describe what that is? A safe sexual assault forensic examiner nurse is a nurse who is an RN with at least one years of experience in any general field of nursing that's decided that she wants to become a sexual assault forensic nurse examiner. So sa- safe or sane, those two um, um, abbreviations is what you'll hear from us. Now, um, sometimes a lot of the sanes are experienced in emergency medicine, but there is no requirement that you have to have that kind of experience first. Okay. And it's important to highlight that safe and sane are kind of interchangeable, right? So it's the sexual assault forensic examiner or sexual assault nurse Nurse examiner, examiner. because we might Mm -hmm. be interchanging those in our Mm -hmm. discussion today. Mm -hmm. So um, for anyone that might be listening that's a nurse or a medical provider and they're interested in becoming a safe nurse, what do they have to do to become Mm -hmm. certified? The training is pretty intense. I will say that. Um, There's 40 hours of didactic training that a nurse will get to do this job, whether it's online or in person, depends on the program that you're associated with. But it's also at least another 40 hours of competency work because before you go out to do your first exam and collect your first set of evidence, we really want to know that you're competent in being able to work with anybody who's been sexually assaulted. So that's about 80 hours worth of work at least that um, someone has to put into being trained for this. Topics range from... Mm. Uh, detailed anatomy and physiology, human sexual response, uh, behavioral and, and physical response to trauma, forensic evidence collection, photography, a little more about the legal system, um, detailed documentation. It's, it's um, pretty comprehensive. Right. Because ultimately you are collecting yes. evidence as part of a crime, correct? Right, so correct. The, the detail behind the exam, mm-hmm. documentation, and that chain of custody as well mm-hmm. is something, too, that is important right. um, that are highlighted through this type of training. And uh, the nurses, if they aren't already predisposed to this, they certainly come out being and are expected to be hypervigilant and very detail-oriented when it comes to doing this job. Um they are non-judgmental about what they hear, and they make no assumptions at all. They are—they really spend a lot of time getting information that's detailed. Okay, okay. So can you just um, walk us through what a forensic exam looks like? So if somebody is assaulted, they go to the hospital, a sane responds, what, what's that process look like? Mm. I think most people at first think that it's just the kit. It's about getting swabs, putting them in a box, and sending them off with law enforcement. But it's really a lot more than that. They, um, we spend a lot of time talking with the patients about what their options are, whether or not they want to file a police report, collect evidence, or just make sure that they are medically and physically healthy. Um, 
once the the patient decides what he or she wants to do, our role is to do the medical forensic interview, exam, and evidence collection. That includes uh, photography work also. Um, the evidence collection is a 15-step process. Mm-hmm. Okay. We, where we focus on really it's guided by what the patient has told us has happened. Um, and then from that point, we will investigate carefully and look at uh, and assess this, per- these, this person's body for anything that we can collect or, or for any injury that we might see. Mm-hmm. Um, once the evidence is collected, then we do risk assessments for sexually transmitted infections as that includes HIV and hepatitis B. And we also do an evaluation for pregnancy risk. Um, We have medications that would be able to prevent the STDs as well as the HIV and hepatitis B. And we have medication that can be used as a, um, um, emergency contraception that we can offer patients. And then finally, of course, for us, we spend a lot of time because our focus is also safety. So we will make sure along with the advocate who's working with us in the hospital, we um, establish a safety plan um, so that when this person leaves the hospital, they will go back to a place that's going to be safe. And then there's some um, medical follow-up that also needs to happen. So we organize that with them. Yeah. And it's interesting from each community, it's important to kind of highlight that um, you have the advocates from rape crisis centers that would respond to the hospital, and then you have the sane or yeah. safe nurse that responds. Yeah. So it's really a, a very collaborative <laughs> team approach um, that's providing that emotional support and guidance as well as helping to deal with the forensic retrieval and just that process medically to make sure they're okay. Mm-hmm. So it really um, is providing a great team to address all those issues mm-hmm. that really do need to be evaluated after an assault. Yes, I agree with that. And I want to add to that the healthcare staff that are in the hospital. We work very, very closely with the physician and the nurse that are assigned the, the, um, to take care of the patient. And we work very closely with the advocate. And as that team that does the immediate evaluation and care for the patient, it's very important that we work together. Um, My focus is health and safety and forensics and forensics in a way that it's about doing everything I can and collecting as much information as possible. So when it's time for this move, person to move forward in the process of um, uh, uh, working with law enforcement, that everything is absolutely in place. And all of us, the healthcare staff, as well as the advocate and myself, are there to make sure all that happens. If we don't work together, then it's not easy on the patient. Right, right. 
That's important. And I think that's one of the things even locally here, um, we, you know, the Rape Crisis Advisory Committee really advocated to have the same nurses um, developed in the program in mm-hmm. place so that, that that attention to the needs of the victim um, at the hospital are provided by a specialty right. trained person. So, you know, in many communities, there are sane and safe nurses, but not every community has them. What is the goal of having a safe nurse mm-hmm. versus just uh, an ER doc? or nurse in the ER doing this type of evidence collection? Well, you know, that's a really good question because SANES are there to totally focus on this particular patient and doing the evidence collection and making sure that uh, this person is healthy, as physically healthy when they leave the hospital. It takes us four to six hours beginning to end to work with a patient. Okay. That means doing the, uh, conducting the interview, doing the exam and evidence collection, as well as all the documentation mm-hmm. and, and all the discharge planning and instructions. That takes a long time. There's not a physician or a nurse in a hospital who's able to spend that kind of time with one patient in an emergency room. Right, right. It's the, the atmosphere is too dynamic. There's too much going on. And what makes it challenging if a nurse or physician were doing this, they wouldn't be able to leave the room because once you start collecting evidence for a chain of custody purposes, you cannot leave that evidence. So that means that nurse or physician would be really just hold up in that room and they wouldn't be able to take care of any other patients. So they're taking off the list of people that are going to be able to do the work. Um, so when a SANE comes in, a SANE can spend that time and can pace her work according to how the patient is reacting. So we don't have to barrel through it quickly to get out of the room. We know exactly what needs to be done. We've created our, we know because we've done these exams enough, we know exactly what needs to be done. We can be more efficient. We can be more detailed. And then hopefully in the end, what that means is that it's going to be increased reporting and conviction rates, of course, because the evidence that's collected will be collected routinely. It can be guaranteed to be done the same way all the time. Mm So. Well, and I think that, um, you know, if, if there's any communities out there that are thinking about saying, setting up a SANE program, if you don't have one already, there is a lot of benefits, like Holly mentioned, with um, the emergency departments, the time that these types of exams take and the detail and the attention that is needed, um, it really benefits uh, local emergency departments to have these types of programs coming in mm-hmm. to support not only the, the nurses and the docs in the ER, but really for a specialized service and response for for the patient, um, you mentioned a few already. But just what are what are the priorities of the safe nurse when working with the victim? I know you talked about obviously that they're there strictly for the patient, non judgmental. But what are some other the other priorities of a sane nurse when they're working with a victim of rape? Uh, I'm going to start by believing this person has come into the hospital and has asked for help and assistance with the sexual assault that just occurred. Uh, and I can help figure out with 
the patient what it is exactly that needs to be done. So that means it's very patient-centered, right? That's probably the most important thing. Okay, okay. Um, So the role that the SANE plays um, really is part of a multidisciplinary response to sexual assault. So could you just talk briefly about how the nurses work um, with the advocates and the police? So we talked a a little bit earlier about that kind of team response, but Mm -hmm. when you're in that kind of the moment of that type of response in the emergency department, you have the patient, you have the advocate, you have police standing by, you have the nurse. Um, Can you talk a little bit about that kind of multitasking that the nurse has to do in dealing with these types Mm -hmm. of cases? Yes, because we all, even though our goal is the same, and that's to take care of this patient and make sure we can get them through the process as smoothly and easily as possible, um, we all have our different roles to play. So it's about coordinating our response. It's about coordinating the work uh, that we each have to do individually and collectively with the patient. Um, advocates and SANES work very closely. We will oftentimes, usually we are in the rooms together with the patient. Mm-hmm. And the goal is if I'm there doing the evidence collection and taking care of the immediate response to this patient physically, the advocate's role is there as um, uh, to guide them through the process, be there emotionally, and also to help with safety planning. I mentioned before right. that safety planning was really important to all of us um, on behalf of this patient. And the, the advocate's goal will be to make sure that that's set up. The advocate, that experience with the advocate will then bleed out into the rest of the work that everyone does with this victim um, because they'll need somebody to guide them all along. What happens next? What do? I, what did I forget? Help me to form the words I'm going to use to talk to my mother. Right, right. All of that. So our work together in that room ends up being really important. Again, I'm more the physical work and more the emotional work and safety goes um, on the advocate's shoulders. In the meantime, law enforcement comes in um, on a couple of, in a couple of different ways. If the patient wants to have a police wants to file a police report, um, police will be there to get that. Mm-hmm. But police are also there at the end of this um, evidence collection because, for chain of custody purposes, once I collect that information, I have to directly. I hand it off to law enforcement, and that connection is important that way. Okay, and we're going to be talking a little bit about that next step in the process with Lieutenant Mann, who's going to be joining us in the next segment. But I just wanted to share a resource. If there's any um, nurses out there that are interested in becoming SANE nurses, there's the International Association of Forensic Nurses, which is IAFN, um, and they have a, a website that you could look at to find out more information and maybe how to get connected in 
your own local community um, if you are interested in becoming a SANE nurse. Um, their website is ForensicNurses.org. So again, that's the International Association of Forensic Nurses. So um, Holly, thank you so much for that that explanation of the SANE nurse. I think it's such a critical role in the, the team response that we have for victims of rape and sexual assault in our community. And if anyone that's listening needs help, please remember to reach out to the National Sexual Assault Hotline at 1-800-656-HOPE. That's 1-800-656-4673. Please stay tuned. You're listening to The Journey, Stories of Crisis and Hope. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. We are bombarded daily with information about beauty products and anti-aging treatments. Do you know how they have been tested? Are they truly going to make a change or just take the change out of your pocket? Tune in to Shelly's Show & Tell with host Shelly Hancock. We'll bring you the top-rated skincare products and treatments tested by Real Transformation Skin Care Centers. We'll motivate you to make the best changes. Listen Mondays at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Health & Wellness. Transformational healing includes energy medicine as well as hands-on healing. Tune in every week to Transformational Healing with Dr. Bonnie Morrow. If you want to know more about the business and science of energy fields, chakras, and the medical and spiritual community, Join our expert guests as we work together to bring you closer to your personal health vision. Transformational Healing is heard live every Thursday at 12 noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to The Journey stories of crisis and hope we'd love to hear from you with any questions or comments about the show please send an email to j piro voice america at gmail.com that's j p i r r o voice america at gmail.com now back to the journey here again is jessica piro Welcome back, everyone, and thank you so much for joining us today in our discussion around responding to rape and sexual assault. Um, as I had mentioned throughout the show, if you have any questions for our guests, you're welcome to email us at jpirovoiceamerica at gmail.com, or you can call us toll-free at one 472 5792. So my final guest today um, is Lieutenant David Mann. Dave Mann has been a member of the Buffalo Police Department for 30 years, uh, just celebrated his 30th anniversary, um, and is the lieutenant in charge of the department's sex offense section, also referred to as SOS, since 1995. The SOS investigates cases of sexual assault, domestic violence, child abuse, elder abuse, missing persons, and juvenile uh, delinquency uh, that occur in the city of Buffalo. And they also manage all the sex offender registry information for the city of Buffalo as well. Lieutenant Mann is a SAMHSA certified trainer on trauma and is also a health foundation of Central and Western New York fellow. So welcome to the show, Lieutenant Mann. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks for having me. 
So I think one of the first things uh, we've talked about throughout the show is kind of that response piece. So you have the advocate piece. We've talked about the sane nurse responding, um, and the police play a critical role in these cases as well. So could you outline for our listeners how a typical, and I know that's a, probably not the, an easy word to use, but a typical investigation is conducted with a rape case? Well, generally speaking, um, the response, the initial response is in most jurisdictions done by a uniform patrol officer. Um, that patrol officer will just take basic information about the incident. And then in most jurisdictions, the case is turned over to an investigator or a detective. Now, I, uh, I like to say to our recruits and to new detectives that we are uh, the department of what happened. We're not the uh, – when we do an investigation, we're trying to determine what in reality happened um, and not why we don't uh, deal, generally speaking, with motives about what happened. Uh, we, we deal – strictly with the facts, you know, like Joe Friday, just the facts. Um, and so uh, investigation is the process of us trying to determine as best we can what happened. And once we make a determination uh, as best we can about what happened, we have to figure out whether or not that incident was a crime and if a crime was committed, who uh, committed that. So when all cases of sexual assault or rape, as Robin mentioned earlier, a necessary component of any such uh, crime from a legal standpoint is a lack of consent of some kind. So in some cases that we investigate, the lack of consent uh, is what we call status um, a lack of consent, and that means that the person is, for some legal reason, not capable of giving consent under any circumstances. And that uh, typically is someone who is uh, either a child under the age of 17 in New York State and in most other states, or for uh, physical or mental reasons, doesn't have the capacity to give consent. So if when we look at an incident, we find that there is a reason to believe that there was a lack of consent, and if we can establish the identity of the person in, in 85 to 95% of the cases, the victim knows the person uh, who committed the offense, then we, um, then we have the basis for a criminal charge, and we make a determination at that point about whether or not we'll proceed with an arrest or in some cases we confer with the prosecutor and um, it's done either through grand jury or, or some other type of hearing. And this, I think what's important to highlight is this is a process. These things take time. I know in our local community over the last couple of years, we've had some high-profile cases that um, got in the media and there was a lot of attention to them. And there's this kind of viewpoint that these things should be, answers should be quicker um, in investigating these crimes. And I, I know we kind of joke in our team here that um, this isn't Law & Order SVU and it's done in an hour. It takes time to do these investigations and you have to be very 
deliberate and diligent in how you're responding not only to the person you're working with as the victim, but also the family and and other people that are involved. So I just wanted to highlight that because I think that people need to understand that this is a process and it does take time for police to do these types of investigations. Mm-hmm. For example, if you just think about the evidence that Holly was just talking about gathering, that evidence goes into a rape kit and it's sent to uh, the forensic lab. Now, here in Erie County in New York, we are fortunate because we our county has its own forensic lab. In many jurisdictions, it has to be sent to another location or to the central state lab, and that can add time. But even locally, with the ability to send it directly to our own lab, it takes time for that evidence to be processed. So uh, there are physical requirements like that that just it takes some amount of time. And then there's just the, the normal process of us being able to figure out and then provide information that would be meaningful in court. So People have to understand that investigation is a process. And and we talked a lot about language, all of us today, because sometimes people get hung up on the on the word rape or sexual assault. Rape has a normal meaning, sexual assault has a normal meaning in the way that we talk, but it also has a technical legal meaning. The most important thing for anyone who feels though that they've been victimized is that they get themselves seen and that uh, they report it to the police. It's a process to figure out what specific legal charge, if any, will come out of that report, but it's important for people to seek out the help that they uh, need. It's important for us, um, uh, for the police, to have that information because it might fit into a larger problem that's going on in the community, either with a specific uh, offender, you know, who's had multiple victims, or with a specific kind of offense in populations, such, such as was mentioned earlier with uh, college-age uh, women in particular. Now, consent is difficult uh, uh, to prove when it's not circumstances where there was overt violence. But there is a, uh, there's a video out on uh, the internet that I had all my detectives watch and that I've been recommending lately because it really does provide a, a queer understanding, generally speaking, of, of, of this issue of consent. So if you put in T consent, That's an awesome video. T-E-A, like tea that you drink, T consent into uh, uh, Google or any other search engine, there'll be a video that comes up and that will give uh, give you a general sense of of consent and how it works as it's related to this law. But again, the the most important thing is to reach out for help, to get yourself seen physically, and to make the report to the police. And then we'll figure out what uh, you know what the nature of the investigation is going to be, and, and whether there are going to be charges or anything down the road. But it does seem to be important for victims in the long run Mm -hmm. um, to have that report made and to at least have it, you know, I I guess validated or noted somewhere um, that this occurred. And then if charges come from that, that's, that's good for all of us. Um, But 
but we don't worry about that at the beginning. That's something that we'll get to at the end. Talk a little bit about what are some of the challenges in conducting these types of investigations. Well, the the main challenge um, is that there's a perception of rape that still persists in our community. That it's something that occurs uh, between people who don't know each other, and that it always involves some over level of force. In other words, if someone is a victim of a sexual assault, that we should be able to see injuries, that there had to be a struggle or a fight. And of course, that's not, uh, that's not required by the law and that's not uh, what we expect to see. And in fact, in the majority of cases, we're not going to see overt injury or use of weapons or other things that people might expect. So the difficulty is in for us being able to establish in a way that will uh, be meaningful in court the lack of consent that becomes clear to an investigator as they're working on the case. There is a a, a rape third charge um, in New York State, so it's uh, it's commonly referred to, for better or worse, as the no-means-no statute. But it's a statute that deals with sexual assault where there's no um, overt statement by the victim of a lack of consent, meaning she didn't necessarily say no. She didn't put up a fight. But the um, statute deals with situations where if we were an outside observer and we saw the interaction between the two, would we think that the would we think that that person had consent? And if the answer to that question is no, then it's the charge again of rape third year in New York State. That's the difficulty. There are many cases where there are simple liability cases, like I talked about before, where the person is not capable of consent because they're underage or some other reason. There are cases where overt force is used and we see injuries and so it's clear to anyone that the person did not give consent. But for many cases in the middle, there uh, are cases where it's just one person's word against the other. Um, And there are ways to deal with that, but they do make the cases more difficult. Finally, there are some cases where the victim is drugged, intoxicated, or otherwise incapacitated and simply does not remember what happened. So that can present a challenge. But in all all of those cases, we've had successful prosecutions that have come out of all those different kinds of situations. The main thing for victims is not to decide up front, well, this isn't going to go anywhere anyway. Um, it's important for, for a victim to come forward, to make the report, to be seen physically and medically, and then we'll figure out what the next steps are from there. Absolutely. And I just wanted to, to point out, you mentioned the piece about the drug-facilitated sexual assault, that um, when, when people do go to the hospital as part of the forensic exam, there's also testing that, or uh, specimens that can be collected to help with that type of testing as well, which is important because that's a separate chart. Well, in New York State, I'm not sure if states may vary, but that's a separate charge in addition to a rape charge if it's proven that it was a drug-facilitated sexual assault. Yeah, that's an additional charge, but it's also an important aspect in us understanding what happens. So again, as I said, law enforcement uh, 
we're the department of what happened. In order for us to understand what happened, we need to understand that context if it's part of it. So we encourage victims, if there was drug use, even if, if they were willing participants in that drug use, don't let that limit you from coming to the police because we're not interested in that except to know about it as part of the context so we can understand what happened. Right. And I think, um, you know, as I was kind of preparing for today and, and pulling together some information, I came across the International Association of Chiefs of Police that has a lot of inf- resources for law enforcement officials on um, kind of planning and appropriate approaches to dealing with different types of cases. And there's a piece on trauma-informed sexual assault investigation. Um, are you familiar with this approach? And is this something that you're implementing to do work here in Buffalo? Yes, we are um, using that outline both in training for our detectives and our officers as a framework for us to understand how to better work with victims. You know, taking that trauma into account is an important part of that. Understanding the effect that trauma can have on memory and the way people uh, recount the details of an assault is important. And we're also using a a follow-up a questionnaire and document, a sort of a case history document that they've developed around that. Um, we're, we're beginning to develop implementing that, and we're using that as an outline to work better with crime analysis. Wonderful. And that, uh, for law enforcement who might be listening, the website for is just IACP, so the International Association of Chiefs of Police.org, um, IACP.org. So I want to thank you so much, uh, Lieutenant Mann, Robin, and Holly, for, for joining me today. Um, there's so much, uh, uh, when you talk about these cases, um, there's so many partners and, and stakeholders in our community that are, are coming together in a collaborative manner to really provide a support and the best service for those that have been victimized by rape and sexual assault. Um, as I mentioned earlier in the show, April is Sexual Assault Awareness Month. So over the next few weeks, I will have various guests talking about sexual violence prevention, also highlighting the work work on college campuses and what they're doing to address sexual violence on campus. Um, so to do your part in becoming part of the solution, you can also check out nomore.org. Um, the No More campaign is really about getting our community involved in addressing sexual violence. So I want to thank you so much for joining us for another episode of The Journey, Stories of Crisis and Hope. Please join me every week Tuesday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time. Um, and if you have any questions or comments about the show, you can email me at jpirrovoiceamerica at gmail.com. That's J-P-I-R-R-O voiceamerica at gmail.com. And for anyone who's been listening today that needs to reach out to your local resources, the National Sexual Assault Hotline is 1-800-656-HOPE, 1-800-656-4673. Thanks again for tuning in and do your part this week to provide hope to others. Thank you for tuning in to The Journey, Stories of Crisis and Hope. Please join your host, Jessica Pirro, for another edition of the program next Tuesday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time and 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We'll see you here next week.